Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking lithium-ion phosphate batteries and their changing and growing role in the energy transition. What are they? How do they contrast against other lithium-ion batteries? What are the benefits and what are the trade-offs? And more broadly, how are chemistries changing to adapt to the needs and costs of this growing industry? Our guests are John Pasolacqua, CEO of First Phosphate, a mineral development company fully dedicated to extracting and purifying phosphate for the production of LFPs, and Isabel Sheldon. Isabel has been an early pioneer in the electric battery industry with deep knowledge of both chemistries and the supply chains, has been on the board of a number of organisations and is on the board of First Phosphate. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. John, Isabel, welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Well, it's great to have you both on. So the discussion we're having today is is around LFPs, lithium-ion phosphate batteries, and their context within the broader lithium-ion suite, and then cascading out to the broader lithium-ion industry, the electrification that we're building in the energy transition. Isabel, you spent your career pioneering a lot of applications and, and battery technologies. Can you just help us before we sort of dig into LFPs themselves and contrasting them? Can you just, from first principles, help us understand lithium-ion batteries and kind of the, the, the suite of batteries that are out there today? Yeah, no, no problem at all, Paul, and uh, and thanks for the invite to come on the podcast. There's there's quite a range of lithium-ion batteries uh, available for use in things like electric vehicles and. This is very much dictated by the kind of applications that you need to use these these batteries in. So currently, one of the main focuses for you know the last four or five years has been energy density and increasing range, um, because that's what everybody's obsessed by when they go into a car showroom to buy a car, and trying to push that range up as far as possible so that people spend less time on, on fast charges and, and can get to their destinations in a fairly timely manner. Which is all well and good, but of course the high nickel chemistries are, are, are quite a bit more expensive. And uh, if you're starting to to really look at 350 or 400 miles range for an electric vehicle, um, that that tends to result in a very costly battery. And of course the price point for the car is pretty high. So there's a range of lower cost chemistries that have either been ex- in existence for a while. So LFP or lithium ion phosphate batteries has been around. Uh, well over 20 years now but they're really coming into vogue as the market's maturing and people are understanding that you don't need to go out and buy a 350 to 400 mile range vehicle when you you tend to drive 20 or 30 miles a day Um, so you're buying a lot of battery capacity that you, you you don't really need on a regular basis so that's really driven quite a bit of optionality in the market moving forwards and that's where the the range of chemistries that are available are becoming really applicable to this electric vehicle market as it it matures moving forwards. Great, because it is going to become relevant. What are the main chemistries out there, just briefly? So typically what you see in most cars that you've been able to buy over the last couple of years is what's called nickel, manganese, cobalt, NMC or NCM, depending on which way you want to put those elements around. And and that started off in a a 30% split uh, between the nickel, the manganese and the cobalt uh, originally, uh, going back about 10 years. And the nickel content has gone up over time. So going from 
a 333 NMC to a 532 and uh, then up to a 622 and an 811. And 811 is pretty much what most companies are focusing on commercializing uh, and putting into production for electric vehicles today. LFP is, as I said before, has been around for about 20 years. It sort of fell out of, out of vogue and out of popularity because uh, everybody was focused on range. But now the price point uh, question is really starting to be raised in, in many economies around the world. LFP is starting to gain a significant amount of traction in the market for those lower cost vehicles to improve the price point access that people want to see um, for electric vehicles. But of course, it has a deficit in energy density, uh, typically about 170 to 180 watt hours per kilo for an LFP compared to in between 280 and 300 for a high nickel NMC. But there are also some other materials that have been in development uh, to try and give uh, even more optionality moving forward. So sodium iron is coming along. At the moment, that's around about 145 to 150 watt hours per kilo. So quite a bit lower energy density than the LFP. But also things like lithium sulfur have been have been investigated, uh, which which give you the option of going for a very, very high energy density. You know, it could be well over 400, 450 watt hours per kilo. But significant problems of actually getting that that kind of chemistry to work in applications and have a cycle life that's going to be uh, long enough for it to be used in an electric vehicle. Looking at the future uh, beyond where we are now, uh, things like lithium manganese iron phosphate. So pretty much an LFP with a high degree of manganese in it offers a, an improvement in energy density because the voltage profile is, is, is larger. And that can you know, provide a, a solution out to a sort of 230 to 240 watt hours per kilo, which is a very good intermediate step in between where we are with LFP today and the higher nickel NMC chemistries that are, that are really being used in, in mainstream volumes at the moment. Yeah. I want to talk about sort of battery attributes beyond energy density, but just for me and, you know, might be one or two others who don't really understand it out there. Can you just help us understand a bit more about energy density? What does that actually translate into in terms of performance and so forth? So energy density is only one of the metrics we tend to focus on. There's sort of four or five that are that are quite important. Um, so things like discharge rates, you know, if you put your foot down in your vehicle, you expect it to accelerate in a certain way. And that can be very important for certain brand attributes, um, you know, especially the high performance vehicles where you need the ability to deliver current as well as range. So power density is a, is a really important one. Another one is cycle life. And this is where it gets really interesting. If you look at energy density over time for the passenger car market, it's being traded off against uh, lower cycle life. So you have higher energy density and lower cycles. And really, that's come about because when we when we started off in the EV industry all those years ago or even decades ago, we didn't really understand how people would use their vehicles if they'd use them in the same way that people use their internal combustion engine uh, vehicles today. So we had to err on the side of safety and we had to give a quite a large cycle life, which was generally around about two and a half to three thousand cycles. And consequently, that limited the, the energy density that we could offer within the kind of technology that we're putting on the market. Now, as we've realised that people don't actually drive their cars any more than they do for a fossil fuel vehicle, it's not like they they suddenly got guilt free motoring, so they end up driving around an awful lot more. We realised that 90% of the time, in fact, more than that, probably about 93 or 94% of the time, these vehicles sit on a driveway at home or in a car park at work or in a, in a supermarket car park. And they're not actually going anywhere. So we can really cope with that reduced cycle life because of the utilisation of these vehicles are pretty low. However, when we get to things like commercial vehicles, uh, they tend to be doing something at least 70% of their time. 
either drive, driving around or, or being charged and you know, delivering your, your parcels and delivering goods to shops to put onto the shelves. So the cycle life requirements for the commercial vehicle sector is significantly higher and we really need to get to the three to four thousand cycle level with those kinds of technologies so that we don't munch through the life of the battery too quick. You know, you need a battery to last the life of the vehicle, which is sort of eight to ten years. And if you're using a 1200 cycle high nickel NMC type technology, you may be replacing your battery at year four or year five, which as far as the cost of total cost of ownership is concerned, is not good for the companies that are that are earning their livings off uh, having those vehicles on the road. So cycle life tends to be quite an important uh, metric to, to focus on, depending on the application that you've got. Uh, but of course, price, cost, that's going to be critically important moving forwards. And I think it's important to understand that we will use different chemistries according to different price points and the kind of applications that people are, are expecting to see when they go into a, a car showroom and buy their car or they go to the fleet sales guys and, and look for a commercial vehicle. Um, that's that's going to be really important. And certainly for the commercial vehicles, that total cost of ownership is going to be critically important to the market. I want to come back to cost in a moment. Can you just help us understand a bit more about, so am I right in saying energy density essentially pertains to range and discharge rates pertain to power and performance? And, and is that right? And what's the relationship between the two? So you, you're absolutely correct in that. And um, if you look at um, cells where we need to, or battery cells and battery technology where we need to have high energy density, typically you can't deliver high power at the same time because you need conductive elements within the cell that allows you to handle the current that that cell is going to be uh, providing. And the bigger the conductive elements in the cell, the less space you've got for the active elements that store the energy. So there's a a direct relationship between power, capability and energy density. Generally, you can't do both at the same time. But recently, you know, Tesla's been developing their 4680 cell that has a better compromise between the kind of power delivery that can happen within the cell and the kind of energy density you can contain within the materials you can fit in. And therefore, you get a better relationship between the amount of energy stored and the amount of energy. Uh, energy density or range that you can deliver to those vehicles, which becomes really important as you, you move up the, you know, the, the kind of vehicles into the, the, the powerful sports car type vehicles or the top end of the uh, general vehicle ranges where you've got a performance model. You don't really want to have a shortened uh, range for those vehicles or a lower energy density because you're, you're demanding more from the cell. But also you've got things like fast charge to take into consideration. So the faster we can we can get energy in cells, the better it is for the consumer because they're not sat there having to think about eating a sandwich or buying a coffee whilst they're waiting for their vehicles to charge. And as you go up the price points uh, in that vehicle range, you know the more expensive the car, the less uh, keen owners are to sit on a on a charger for 40 minutes. Um, so so charge times need to come down. We need to have better accessibility to fast charge networks and probably higher power delivery in those fast charge networks so that we can actually maximize the opportunity of fast charging. And charging speeds is more directly related to that that discharge rate, right? That's sort of the key bit there. Well, fundamentally, the enemy of any battery cell technology is going to be temperature. You know, when we start getting that temperature going high, we start to end up with side reactions going on within the the chemistry in the cathode material, we have side reactions going on in the electrolyte, and we have to stay away from those high temperatures as much as possible because that's where a lot of the degradation happens. So whether you're pulling energy in, a, in into a cell or you're, you're, you're trying to get it out of a cell very quickly, internal resistance and therefore the what's called the I-squared R heating 
you know, if you pass current through something that's very resistive, it tends to heat up. It means that you have to keep the internal resistance of those those cells very, very low. But it also has impacts on the kind of chemistries that we put into things like the anode. Because when we're charging, we're putting pulling all of those lithium ions through the through the electrolyte, through the separator and into the anode. And the ability of that anode material to receive those lithium ions and receive the electrons that go around the, the different part of the circuit um, is pretty critical to make sure that we're not having problems like lithium plating, which can cause um, safety issues. Um, so there's quite a lot going on within a cell when we're looking at these performance uh, capabilities and criteria and what we need to do engineering wise to make sure that they operate as expected and safely. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think that complexity and interplay of trade-offs is not necessarily recognised just more broadly in the public. And I know you've been a strategy officer in your time as well. I mean, it seems like all the focus is on range. Is that shifting and people are saying, actually, I don't need 300-mile range. I'm more interested in performance. And I understand there's a trade-off there in that. Well, there's a couple of things within that. You know, there's there's a view that batteries are just batteries. In reality, they're not. It depends what you want to do with them. So that one size fits all, which is where the big six manufacturers have been focusing for the last 10 years, doesn't really cope with those edge cases or or those uh, additional vehicles where you need decent performance. And they're actually quite large uh, market sectors. It's not a, you know, the edge of the bell curve isn't vertical, it's a big long slope. So, for example, high high performance vehicles and commercial vehicles are probably going to be around about 350 gigawatt hours worth of demand in the early 2030s. And to give you some idea, that's not far off the size of the entire EV industry today. So these edge cases are really, really interesting. You need much more specialized cell technology to, to, to meet those requirements. Yeah, interesting. Okay, one final piece of the puzzle before we sort of move on to, to the broader context of LFPs. When we talk about cost, what are the sort of the units we're looking at here? You know, how do we how do we define that? So generally, it's defined as a dollar per kilowatt hour. And one of the uh, one of the metrics that, that the battery companies have been aiming for is to get a, a system at a pack level that costs less than $100 per kilowatt hour. And typically you will have a cell within that and probably somewhere in the region of 65 to $75 per kilowatt hour, um, depending on the chemistry and, and how it's uh, manufactured. And then the rest of the elements are things like cooling systems, battery management systems, the casing that goes around the connectors and the contactors inside. And that's really considered the price point level at which you get parity with internal combustion engine vehicles. So the lower we can get that cost the better. And if I go back to when I started my career in batteries, we were, you know, 700 watt hours per kilo, uh, $700 per kilowatt hour um, back in the early, early 2000s. And that's just for a cell, whereas now we're looking at somewhere in between 70 and 80. Well, certainly before, you know, the pandemic and, and before the increase in, in the lithium price, um, we we're certainly heading towards those kinds of levels. Um, it's a little bit higher these days. It's hovering around, around about $100 per kilowatt hour. And just at the cell level, then you've got all the other stuff like pack and BMS and, and thermal management on top. So we're not quite there as far as cost is concerned yet. But we do have some some value drivers that we're all looking at in increasing the supply of those materials in the marketplace, in improving the uh, capacity in the refining of, of those materials and, and the midstream processing, which will all help to drive that cost down as much as possible. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated story we've covered a, a few times as well, right? Because you're also layering costs by moving away from a more efficient global model, given the, the background geopolitical tensions and, and so forth. But I'm sure we'll we'll get there. OK, can you, this has been excellent, Isabel, can you just now for us contrast LFPs, lithium-ion phosphate batteries that obviously may, may have a small amount of manganese, as you mentioned, but are losing that nickel and cobalt. Where do they stack up against their nearest competitors? And it seems like they're, they're growing dom- dominance in EVs and other, other use cases. Well, as that market matures and people realise they don't need to have these really massive capacity packs for their, their daily lives, and they're starting to realise that a, a reduced range battery could be a very good, good buying option for them. So an LFP battery of around about 170 to 200, sorry, 170 to 180 watt hours per kilo is giving you just a little bit under two thirds of the capacity of the latest and greatest uh, longest range battery packs. So that's an attractive uh, proposition, really. It's, it's an easy way to reduce the cost. The other advantage of LFP batteries compared to nickel, uh, high nickel materials is that you can, on a more regular basis, you can charge them up to 100% because the cycle life of those cells is, is, is a lot higher. Whereas typically, if you own an EV, you, know, you want to be restricting your charge rates to about 80% and only charging up to 100% um, when you need to go long distances and that protects the life of the battery. So some of those problems disappear as we go into, into LFP. And it's also much safer as a, as a technology, too. It's less volatile than the cathode. Um, it tends not to go into thermal runaway. The high nickel materials do have the, the risk of doing that. And the kind of temperatures of decomposition that enables that to happen uh, are about uh, 1,000 degrees for an LFP. And if your car's at 1,000 degrees, I would, I would probably suggest you've got other things to worry about. <laughs> Whereas with a, a high nickel material, it's around the mid-200s. And, and those are the kinds of trigger temperatures that you can get to fairly easily if something goes wrong. So it, it's a bigger picture than just cost. It's about price point, of course, is important, but longevity is really important. And then you know, you're putting less engineering around the battery pack with an LFP cell because it's fundamentally uh, less volatile than a high nickel material and that can, that can deliver reducing, reducing cost to Thanks for that. What, what are the, beyond kind of this range, what are the downsides in terms of LFPs? Are they you know, typically larger, heavier? I mean, is there anything that's sort of on the flip side? Yeah, well, you know, energy density is measured in uh, watt hours per kilo if you're looking at graphometric or watt hours per litre if you're looking at it volumetrically. So if you've got a, a gravimetric energy density that's that's two thirds of uh, the highest available chemistries, then you are going to have a battery that's going to be bigger for the same capacity. But of course, what you wouldn't do is you wouldn't make the battery larger to, to, to make the same capacity because, you know, as that market matures and people expect less range for their daily cars, you, you can actually use the same size battery pack and the, and the hit in, in the energy content of that battery and the lower range that results uh, will become less of a problem. So, you know, you can engineer packs to do lots of different things. And of course, you know, if you, if you look at some of the cell to pack technology that's being developed, uh, particularly in China recently, They've taken advantage of the improved safety and the reduced engineering requirement to protect against thermal runaway to pack the cells much closer together. So volumetrically, they can still achieve some some really good pack level energy densities, not have a a nightmare with safety, but also take advantage of that 20% price benefit you get by using a cathode material. I mean, it should be, sorry, an LFP cathode material. 
in theory, people think it's an awful lot higher, the discount from moving from nickel to, to LFP. But because you don't have the energy content and energy density is your friend as far as the cost of your cells is concerned, it means that the cost of everything else goes up because you've got less unit energy in each cell. So rather than being a 40% reduction in price, it's more like a 20% reduction because you need all of the other things to go in the cell and, and that doesn't change much. Thanks for that, Isabel. I think that's given us a great grounding and fascinating understanding of the breadth and sweep of batteries out there and the attributes that we should be looking for. So, John, can you give us a bit of the history of LFPs in major applications like EVs? What's been the trend line, not only in Vs, but also in other applications as we solve intermittency, etc.? Yeah, so when we look at LFP, you know, it's, it's really been started and uh, commercialized uh, mostly in China. And so, you know, it's hard to get um, a perspective uh, from the Western world as to, you know, where it is and where it could be going. We really need to look at China and we all, always have to understand that, you know, China is leading in terms of, of adoption, in terms of the size of market and in terms of the technology. So if we do look over at China, you know, we'll see that, you know, I believe that almost uh, 50% of, of vehicles are running on LFP in China, if not more. And it's mostly in when you start looking at in the sector such as um, commercial transportation, buses, lightweight trucks and such. I mean, that's almost 100% of what is being used in, in China for those kind of applications for various reasons. So then when you when you fast forward to us and you see that, you know, now LFP is, is really uh, starting to take off in North America, you kind of have to look at those trends and, and assume that they, they will follow here too. And then you have to kind of ask yourself, you know, why are those trends taking place? And I think... Isabel pointed out many of the reasons why. If you had to look at it from my perspective, just from a layman's perspective without getting too much into the technical details, I think when you're trying to develop a project in a laboratory, you're under certain conditions. When you look for certain things, like Isabel was saying, it was all about range. But then when you get into, you know, actual market dynamics and, you know, mass adoption and, and actually producing a product, you know, you're looking at more pragmatic kind of considerations. So if I had to sum it up, I think um, the the LFP battery is the most versatile battery out there. It's the battery of choice for for many different reasons. I mean, Isabel pointed out, you know, the fire safety, also the, the cost, also the ability to you know charge and, and discharge it uh, many times without the, you know, without the the issues of memory around the battery, and also the fact that you know it's not necessarily range that people need, even though the range on the LFP battery gets better, just like um, with all the other batteries, range is not really so much an issue in that, you know, it's got enough to, to go back and forth in, in a day. 300 kilometers is enough to, 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 to drive around the city in a day. And then when you get back home or wherever it is that you store the vehicle, you can charge it. It doesn't have necessarily a, a, a battery issue. It, it stores safely. You know, there's no issues around around fires. So, so that's why I think, you know, there's been a real move to LFP and then also, of course, the cost. Now, what we see in North America, we've seen Tesla start to adopt uh, the LFP battery. And now the LFP battery is in about 50% of all their vehicles, which makes them, you know, the largest user of, of LFP battery in North America. And we've seen them immediately drop the, the, the cost on a lot of these vehicles, like severely. I mean, they're trying to get uh, down to a $25,000 uh, per vehicle cost. And this is important. And it's important because 
Um, this is what's going to drive mass adoption. I mean, mass adoption is almost being legislated now. Um, there's been, um, you know, some legislative legislative changes in, in Canada, in U.S., and I believe some are underway in Europe as well. That you know, the automobile manufacturers could be penalized if they haven't produced a certain amount of electric vehicles by a certain date. So it's no longer something that you experiment with. It's something that you really need to drive the mass adoption, and that's why the LFP battery is. Uh, you know, is, is being implemented. It seems to be the best pragmatic choice by the electric vehicle manufacturers to basically push through that that mass adoption. And when you have somebody like Tesla come in and, and, and use it and cut costs and, you know, force competition and all the other vehicle producers, I mean, I think that, that raises a, a, a lot of eyebrows. And I think now you see, you know, all the other manufacturers have started to move apart, if not a good part of uh, all of their production to LFP battery. I mean, we've had announcements uh, from Ford, uh, we've had announcements from uh, Stellantis, uh, Mercedes, um, and, and another number of others. It really is touching everybody. Everybody has a, uh, you know, some type of an LFP uh, research or you know development or implementation program on the go, and uh, that's really I think because of you know this battery is really becoming the really you know well-rounded choice for for mass adoption. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. It's interesting. I was having a conversation yesterday with a a senior figure within a European energy company who was saying how actually we all thought we were going to drive electric vehicles like we do internal combustion engines. Uh, vehicles and actually we don't behaviors are changing in Norway in particular where this conversation was based and actually people are driving stopping more often the nature of sort of road trips is changing and and range it's fascinating how range which has sort of seemed to be the be all and end all of any discussion around a car is perhaps isn't yeah as you say it could be more focused on other attributes like battery lifespan cycling times charging times and all this piece that actually yeah plays in so that's that's fascinating what about the utility scale pieces lfp got a role in i mean that is a huge lift that's going to need to be done to solve for intermittency you know at yet at the moment not really figured out too expensive etc is lfp has have a, a designated opportunity there too maybe i'll let isabel answer that one yeah, so so when you're looking at you know large scale energy storage and and there are there are sort of certain trends in the market, you you've got the opportunity to time shift renewables, because we know that you know renewable energy doesn't always happen when we need the uh, need to satisfy the demand. You know if the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing, we we need to get it from somewhere. So intermittency is is one particular problem. There was the frequency regulation market that was quite popular, but also arbitrage. Um, you know, buying the energy, storing it and selling it back when it's cheap uh, or buying it when it's cheap and selling it back when you can make a profit. Um, and that round trip efficiency for for large scale energy storage can in, you know, open up some really interesting opportunities. And really fundamentally, if you're building very large scale chemical energy storage systems like batteries, you want it to be as safe as possible. And that's where the LFP really comes in as a as a major win for the industry, um, you know, if you if you have a couple of gigawatt hours worth of uh, energy storage going up in, in flames because uh, there's there's been an incident that can be a, a real crowd pleasing moment 
Um, whereas if you're using a LFP in, in comparison, uh, you've got far less risks and, and, and much less volatility within the system. Um, so LFP has got a got a major role to play within stationary range of storage. This is where sodium ion is coming as a potential solution as well. But that's, you know, as we roll out and deploy these stationary energy storage solutions, we need to have access to low cost cathode materials. They need to last a, lot, last a long time. They need to be fundamentally safe. And that's where LFP really, really wins in that particular market. Yeah, so let's move on to that. So we had Henry Sanderson on talking about Volt Rush. We covered this a number of times. It's interesting, by the way, you mentioned trading around batteries. We had one of our early episodes, we had Aaron Lally on talking about just that. How significant is it? Isabel, that nickel and cobalt, and I know manganese might possibly be there, but those those cathode materials are not present. What does that mean for taking aside cost? What does that mean for scalability? What does that mean for other challenges around environmental degradation? What does that mean for supply chains? Can you just talk to that a bit? So it's really interesting, actually, when you when you look at the material supply chain as it's as it's happened over time. I, I don't think anybody would would claim that it's been planned and it, you know all the dots have been joined correctly over the last twenty years. Um, so cobalt you know remains a problem for the battery industry. Got the artisanal mining issue within the Democratic Republic of, of Congo. There are some companies that would like to turn their back on that region of the world and not buy that material. I personally think that would be a mistake because if we just stop buying that cobalt, we throw a load of people out of jobs and they can't feed their families and educate their children. So I think it's more about a a need to to work with uh, you know, the NGOs on the ground and work with the governments in Africa to make sure that, that working standards are improved. So moving away from LFP you know, gets rid of the cobalt question, but it doesn't say, solve the cobalt problem for the people on the ground uh, in those particular countries. Also, we've, we've got a challenge with uh, a lot of the nickel being used in the world, especially here in Europe, coming from, from Russia. And it's not one of the sanctioned materials uh, within Russia at the moment. Um, so we're continuing to buy that, that nickel material. And, you know, thinking about things like um, phosphoric acid, which is important in the LFP manufacturing, which is why we're talking to you today. And still a proportion of that comes from Russia, too. So we we need to have the ability to diversify these supply chains to make sure that we're not reliant on the next area that's going to be a problem in the future. And we have the ability to deal with those problems and resolve those issues without affecting this decarbonisation transition that we're all really intent on on seeing through to the end because uh, at the end of the day we've only got one planet and we've got to look after it so i think that 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 picking through those those sensitivities in the marketplace and making sure that we really start to lift all boats as we benefit from this energy transition moving forwards is going to be part of the imperative the industry that really needs to take to heart to make sure that everybody benefits from this rather than just certain countries that want to dominate those supply chains yeah, absolutely. Um, well, maybe that's an opportunity to turn it back to you, John, and talk about, I guess, the phosphoric acid supply chain and where what, what it's used for and where it comes from. Yeah, so that that's a big topic. I guess what most people don't realize is that for lithium iron phosphate batteries, the phosphate is, you know, not just a regular phosphate that would, you know, go into fertilizer. Um, people seem to think that because it's lithium and then iron and phosphate, that because iron and phosphate are, are thought to be abundant on the planet, that we could make an abundant amount of batteries. And that's not true because uh, firstly, you know, the iron uh, that goes in has to go in either as an iron sulfate or as an iron powder. And, you know, so it's got to be refined to that level. But even more so on the phosphoric uh, acid side, 
you know, it, it's just not normal phosphate that goes into the battery. The precursor is phosphoric acid, purified phosphoric acid. And to get the purified phosphoric acid, there are a number of steps involved. And it depends whether you're dealing with sedimentary phosphate or igneous phosphate. So, you know, what, what our company has first phosphate is, you know, igneous phosphate. Igneous phosphate is only 5% of the world's phosphate. And within that, there's, you know, a 1% uh, that's even the purest, which is the igneous anorthosites in Quebec, which we have. So, and then everything else is, is sedimentary deposit. When you look at sedimentary deposit um, to start, you have to purify that up to merchant grade phosphoric acid, which is, you know, basically fertilizer grade phosphoric acid that then gets mixed with other products such as nitrogen, potassium, ammonia to make, you know, various types of fertilizer. But the purified phosphoric acid is is a second transformation of that merchant grade phosphoric acid. And when you're dealing with sedimentary deposit, there's so much impurity in there, cadmium, uranium, and thorium, that only about 10% of that merchant grade phosphoric acid uh, or thereabouts can be purified up to purified phosphoric acid. So what does this mean is that, you know, in order to make a little bit of purified phosphoric acid, you've got to make a lot of, you know, fertilizer-based uh, phosphoric acid, and you have to have find places where to put that fertilizer grade acid obviously on fields right but for the amount of purified phosphoric acid that we're going to be needing um, inside of the western world we do not have the the the, the um, sedimentary phosphate reserves to make that much um, acid uh, first off um, and secondly any purified phosphoric acid that is already being made is mostly destined to um, the food the food and industrial markets such as you know it, it goes into cans of coca-cola it goes into paints it goes into pharmaceuticals fire extinguishing equipment it goes into electronics um, so you know there already isn't a lot of spare capacity of purified phosphoric acid when we're thinking of you know we'd have to probably double and even triple the amount of purified phosphoric acid within the western world there's no capacity to do that and there isn't the, the phosphate rock to do it and if you had to do that with with sedimentary rock you would have to find a market for this 90 percent of of that which would be fertilizer so when we look at igneous rock uh, we're actually quite lucky because igneous rock is so pure and it doesn't have the same impurities as the sedimentary rock in that, you know, 90% of this uh, material can be purified up to purified phosphoric acid. So almost completely, you know, close to 100% of it, you know, through 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 a proper process. I mean, our, our company, First Phosphate, is partnered with Prayon Technologies, Technologies out of Belgium that has, you know, the most advanced purification methods for igneous rock in the world. So with that method and with... Um, first phosphate uh, igneous rock that comes from the northern uh, part of Quebec, just not that north actually, um, two hours north of Quebec City, um, there's massive reserves and those reserves can be all converted into purified phosphoric acid. So we could, you know, we could have the amount, we could easily create a lot of purified phosphoric acid from those reserves. So to simplify this, the starting point is igneous rock. Why? Because 90% of it can be purified up to purified phosphoric acid versus sedimentary rock where only 10% can be purified up to purified phosphoric acid. The second issue is when you purify uh, phosphoric acid, there is gypsum that is emitted in that process. And with sedimentary rock, it becomes uh, radioactive and it has to be piled in the environment and that's an issue. But with sediment, with igneous rock, uh, we're lucky, you know, it can be recycled. It can be recycled into plaster, so it creates circular economy. So that's another big benefit of, of the igneous rock. But thirdly, you know, we have to create a lot of this purified phosphoric acid. So when we look at, you know, just starting off with igneous rock as a basis, because sedimentary rock is just not going to get us there. So starting with sedimentary rock, um, we would need um, by 2030 in North America to create another, um, 
you know, seven purified phosphoric acid plants running on igneous rock just to meet all the demand from LFP, which would be, you know, s small vehicles, commercial vehicles and, and, um, and commercial transportation, and also large-scale and uh, small-scale energy storage. So that's quite a quite a process. I mean, it, it can be done, but it's it's a lot of work. And then the also the other issue is when you when you make purified phosphoric acid, especially the battery grade, which has to be ultra pure and not have any metallics in it, it's very difficult to transport this. So all of this requires you know a really important plan. The plan that 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 we're putting forward at First Phosphate is to you know turn the the port of Saguenay uh, in Quebec and um, you know the Saguenay Lac Saint Jean region of Quebec. Uh, where the igneous rock is present in, in to turn it all into the LFP Battery Valley of North America, where purified phosphoric acid could be made and also the uh, the lithium iron phosphate cathode active material could all be assembled all in one spot, uh, make it easy, um, reduce the contamination risks, and, and also keep down the carbon footprint. So I guess when we talk phosphoric acid and we talk phosphoric acid in, in North America, I think it requires a real plan. We just don't get there by, you know, scrapping together a few thousand uh, uh, tons of purified phosphoric acid that we find here and there if we're lucky, but it really requires a plan on, on a continental scale. It's doable, but that's that's where we stand on purified phosphoric acid, which I believe that this is kind of the linchpin that either, you know, makes the electrification of the continent possible or it doesn't. And then Europe would need to have a, a similar plan. It's a little bit easier for Europe with the purified phosphoric acid because it's got Morocco next to it. And Morocco creates a lot of fertilizer from its sedimentary phosphate stock. So it is able to produce a lot of purified phosphoric acid. Um, so it'll be a little bit easier for Europe, perhaps. But North America and Europe really require a, a massive plan for this. Yeah, and who are now in unspoken competition, given the IRA and the, the Critical Raw Materials Act in the offing. Where, where does this sit in sort of the policy support from the IRA? I know that's US-based, but there's obviously a, a goal here that the stuff comes from Canada, that the work comes from Mexico, and the stuff's assembled in, in the US, I mean, ideally in their, in their mind. But is this recognized as a critical supply chain that's going to be needed? So it's interesting. Phosphate is on the critical minerals list in the EU. It's on the critical minerals list of a, the province of Ontario. We believe that it should be coming on shortly as a critical mineral list on in the province of, of Quebec, we hope. There was recently a um, bill put by the Senate, I believe, a few days ago on recognizing, this is the UN, U.S. Senate, on recognizing phosphate as a critical mineral um, for the U.S. And I know that there's debate and, and lobbying going on in, in Canada. And perhaps in 2024, when they do the update, it might go on there, but we don't know. Nonetheless, um, the big issue is phosphate is depleting um, all over the world. Uh, phosphate is essential for life. It's essential to feed human population. The expansion of human population between the 1960s and today has been in large part due to phosphate. There's a direct correlation between the number of people on this planet and phosphate, if you know where I'm going with that. Um, so by 2100, just the amount of phosphate that we need just to continue to, to keep the planet fed is large. Um, and if we don't have it, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be starvation, unfortunately. And it's not, it's not a nice word that we like to say, but it just is the harsh reality of this. And, you know, all of the phosphate in all of the countries of the world, other than Morocco and a couple others in the, in the Middle East, there's no more than 10 to 30 years of this. So a big issue is, you know, the, um, the competition now between, you know, the needs of the battery and the needs for food and fertilizer. But as we said earlier, only not 10% of the 
of the phosphate in sedimentary rock, which is mostly what all the countries of the world have, can be converted to purified phosphoric acid. So it would largely, by and large, it has to remain, you know, the reserves that are there remain fertilizer and food-based. So what is really important and strategic about these reserves that we have in the saguenay lac saint jean region of Quebec is that, A, they're they're offline, they're not online right now. So if they come online, they're not really competing with anything and that they can make a lot of purified phosphoric acid uh, specifically for battery use. So so in doing that, you know, we bring online deposits that are um, optimized for battery, that are not in competition for food, that have, you know, good ESG credentials around them because they can be fully recycled. The gypsum can be fully recycled. And so it, it is really the only solution for North America. There really is no other solution if North America is serious about LFP battery, which it says to be. But right now, you know, the LFP batteries, um, they're all coming from China, like the full battery, the full cathode active material, the cell, the battery, the casing, everything is just coming from China. And then it's being slipped into EVs. And we just don't know how long that can go on for, because I'm sure China is going to hit a wall as well. China is, is depleting in their phosphates um, little by little. And the, the method by which uh, they're using in China to make the purified phosphoric acid is one that's not used anywhere else in the world anymore because it's too polluting. It's the thermal method uh, where they crack the phosphate with lots of coal, yeah, at 3,000 degrees centigrade, whatever it might be, yeah. Not, not good. Where is First Phosphate Corp at in its journey? It takes a, a while to bring together a project to, to get a, a mine into production. So right now we, we are out on sort of three areas of the company. The, the first area and the, the area of real focus is in getting a mine uh, up and running. Uh, we've got uh, 15 areas around uh, the port of Saguenay, Quebec, within 200 kilometers of the port where there's a strategic reserves of, 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 of phosphates. One of them, we have advanced to almost a PEA level, which should be out in a couple months, and then we'll be moving that one into feasibility. And another, we've, we're just at the drilling stage, and it's showing really, really strong results. And then there's a number of other areas um, that all have phosphate. You know, there, there's decades of, of phosphate, maybe even 100 years of phosphate. And throughout the whole saguenay lac saint jean region of Quebec, there's maybe hundreds of years of phosphate. So, you know, we're developing the assets um, at the Port of Saguenay. We're developing a plan together with our, our partners, uh, Preyon of Belgium, to build a purified phosphoric acid plant. And then after also to have an LFP cathode active material plant as well. And listed on the, the CSE, right? Correct. Yeah, symbol FOSS, P-H-O-S, Peter, Harry, Oscar, Sam. <laughs> there you go. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, and I, I wish you both all the luck right i think it obviously aligns in in hopefully it aligns into both of the geopolitical on activities ongoing as well as policy support and, and a critical need to make i think the the most profound bit of making evs mass adoptable if you'd like and for that they had to come down in cost significantly so yeah I, I i look forward hopefully to having you both back on in a, a year or so and see where the journey is great thank you paul really appreciate it Yes, thank you, Paul. Thanks for your time on, on, on this podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.